you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark. I'd like to use one in the back of the pew, go for that. New Testament book of Mark. For the last time, we will be in chapter 14. We are this close to the finish line in the book of Mark. One full chapter, and then Mark 16, which is very quick. As we've been watching Jesus, our King, we are inching our way towards the climax of his life, his ministry, and this book as we prepare for the cross and his resurrection. Last week, we read about Jesus' trial as he stood before the high priest, and this morning, we're going to watch his disciple on trial. These two events are really one in the book of Mark, so I would encourage you, if you were not here for last week, you need to hear about Jesus' trial for all of this to really reach you, so I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to read Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. There's not much worse than hearing the words, I told you so. For me, it happens too many times. Anytime I need to leave the house, it's going to happen. Where did I put my keys? Where did I put my wallet? Where did I put my phone? And my wife will helpfully suggest the most obvious answer for any of them. And I will tell her, I looked there. It's not there, I promise. Go again and look. So I go and look at the key rack. And there it is, my keys. And she doesn't even have to say it. It's just a look. I told you so. Now, there are I told you so moments that are not very fun not funny at all. Like maybe when you give your grown kids some life advice, some dating advice, some career advice, and they think you're crazy, and they go the other way. And then a few months later, a few years later, you get a phone call, and you have an I told you so moment. 
this passage is that kind of I told you so for Peter. You have to back up to, to remember all that's happened in this story. In verse 27, Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away. And loudmouth Peter steps up to the plate and says, Jesus, you've been right about everything else, but on this thing, you are wrong. The other 11, they'll fall, but you don't know me. I've got this. In verse 30, Jesus tells Peter, Before the, when the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. They go to the garden. Jesus asks Peter to pray. He falls asleep three times. Judas comes in and betrays Jesus with a kiss. They all scatter, including Peter. And by the end of the night, Peter is going to know exactly what Jesus would say. I told you so. Verse 50, we see that Peter and all the disciples fled just like Jesus said. Jesus then goes to the high priest. He stands on trial like we heard last week. And in the midst of that passage, if you'll look back at verse 54, Mark tells us in that episode, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And then Mark just leaves Peter behind and gets into Jesus' trial. If you look at what's happening in Mark 14, it's another one of those sandwiches. Mark starts out with Peter. He gets to the middle and deals with Jesus, which is what's most important. And then he comes back on the other end and talks about Peter. And he wraps it all together because Jesus is not the only one standing on trial. Jesus is standing before the court, before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, but Peter is in the court of public opinion. He stands waiting for a verdict from his peers, his fellow Jews. And Peter does himself no favors when he takes the stand. But there's good news. And I'm going to have to tell you it later. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through this case just like we did last week. As we looked at the king on trial, we're going to look at the disciple on trial. I want to show you this trial again at three different levels. If you were here last week, you already know what they are. But the first level that I want to look at this trial at are the events of the trial. So we're going to go back through this passage and review what has happened. At the first hearing in verses 66 to 67, this is Peter's best chance to set the record straight. Verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Consider who is prosecuting Peter at the moment. This is not some intimidating lawyer who has a great track record. This is not somebody who is very influential and could do some harm to Peter. This is, Mark tells us, a servant girl. 
As R.T. France writes, this is hardly somebody that Peter, the disciple, should be afraid of. Peter, for three years, has gone from town to town. He went on mission trips two by two to tell anybody and everybody about Jesus. And now he's one-on-one with the Jerusalem version of Downton Abbey. He's talking to a little servant girl, and all he's got to do is tell her about this man that he has followed. She has seen him with Jesus, probably within that week, with all the temple events as Jesus rode in on a donkey, as all of the, the events with the scribes have happened. And what does this leader of the disciples do? He chokes worse than the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. Come on, guys. In verse 68, Peter plays dumb. He said, what are you, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't even understand the question. Watch what happens in the text. It's subtle. As soon as he makes his first denial, he literally removes himself physically further away from Jesus. Mark tells us that he goes out to the gateway. And as that first denial happens, the rooster crows. This should be a red flag, a a warning sign, jumping off the page. Wake up, Peter. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. So this first one is like a freebie. Peter should be waking up to to realize what is going down. But in the moment, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his denial, he can't even remember. He's too busy making the worst decision of his life. He is like the person John writes about in 1 John 2 verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friend, let Peter be a free warning. You take that first step into sin, you're not going to have the common sense to come back. You're not going to have the wherewithal to know where you are going. One step into darkness friends, is enough. But Jesus' word for Peter must be fulfilled. And so we go to the second hearing, and it's only going to get harder for Peter. Look at verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. It's not just the servant girl anymore. Peter lost his opportunity. Now she brings in some more lawyers. And these are professionals. Among the bystanders would be some other servants, but likely would be the imperial guard who went into the garden and took Jesus out. Men who would have seen Peter with Jesus. And so with more people comes more questions. And listen to what the girl says. Does this sound familiar? 
the girl says, he's one of them. He's a Christ follower. Now, with every eye on him, Peter wilts under the pressure. Mark just moves straight to the third hearing. He doesn't even speak more on the second denial. In verse 70, look at this. It says, after a little while. Can we just wait there for a second? After a little while. How long is a little while? How many minutes did Peter have where he had to push down his conscience, push down the conviction, and ignore the messages that the Holy Spirit might have given him, just hardening his heart. And in this final exchange, the servant girl is not the prosecutor. It's the entire crowd. The people tell him, we can tell that you're from Galilee. Now, how did they know that? Mark doesn't say, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it's because of his accent. Peter is walking into Jerusalem, and instead of a New York City accent, he sounds like a southern redneck. And they can hear it in him, whether he wants to say he is one of them or not, just by his twang, they know he belongs to Jesus. So he's caught red-handed. In the court of public opinion, Peter is figured out. Now notice, just as the audience has escalated and has gone from a servant to an entire crowd, just as the pressure has mounted, the weight of Peter's sin and, and the horror of what Peter does climbs with it. His response reaches a new level. What he says is more personal. The first time he said, I don't know what you're talking about. But now listen to him. He says, I don't know that man. He can't even say Jesus. He has to refer to him with that pronoun because he, he knows. He's, he's, he feels it. And he outright denies the one that he claimed is the Christ. In verse 71, Mark says it two ways to emphasize how heinous this is. Look at verse 71. He began to invoke a curse and to swear. Once would have been enough, but Mark wants you to know he's doubling down on how evil this was from Peter. Now, one thing we do not know, I want you to stick with me on this because this is worth hearing. One thing we don't know is who Peter actually curses. Now, you'll notice in the ESV, in verse 71, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself. In the Greek, it says Peter began to invoke a curse and swear. There is no phrase in the Greek that says on himself. And if you study the New Testament, it never happens this way. Where the word to swear occurs and the phrase on himself doesn't show up if it means on himself. When this verb shows up alone, 
it means you are cursing someone else. Peter is not putting a curse on him. He's putting a curse on someone else in the room. The question is, who is he cursing? There are two possibilities. The first one is that Peter is cursing the prosecution, everyone around him who's trying to trap him. And when you curse someone, like Paul does in Galatians, it's saying you are going to hell. That's what this term means. So one option is that as the soldiers and the crowd are going after Peter and they're saying, we know you follow Jesus, we can tell you're from Galilee, that Peter says, you can go to hell for saying that I follow Jesus. And now if you think that's rough, and that's harsh, and that's ugly, and I probably shouldn't have said it, the second option is that he did it to Jesus. That Jesus can go there. I want you to feel how sick that is. The horror of that. Because I imagine that's what Peter feels when that rooster crows the second time. As those words come out of his lips. The one Jesus called the rock has just hit rock bottom. And... We never see Peter in the book of Mark again. But we get enough of a glimpse to hope that maybe his story's not over. Because where does Mark leave him? The last sentence in verse 72 says that Peter broke down and wept. That's a big deal because Peter could have gone the way of Judas. Peter could have hardened his heart even after this moment. Peter could have gone into denial about his denial. He could have held firm on this and continued to deny Jesus as people remembered him for this. But in one chapter, friends, in Mark 14 alone... Peter goes from extreme pride in his righteousness, in his ability to follow Jesus, to an extreme evil and to extreme sadness over his sin. Friends, in one chapter of your life, you can do the same. We are not better than Peter. But friends, I give you the case of the disciple on trial. Let me ask you the question that the high priest asked during Jesus' trial. In verse 64, he says, You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? What is your decision for Peter? It's pretty straightforward, it's pretty simple. He's guilty, but there's still good news. And that's why I want to look at this trial at a different level, friends, just like we did last week. We've seen the events, and they're not pretty. It's ugly. But thank goodness we can look at this trial at a different angle. I want to show you, once again, the ironies of this trial. 
the ironies of this trial. And if you were hoping for it, I've got good news for you. I don't know if you came here this week just for this, but if you did, here you go. I have more Alanis set. Alanis sings this. Well, life has a funny way of sneaking up on you. When you think everything's okay and everything's going right, and life has a funny way of helping you out when you think everything's gone wrong and everything blows up in your face. That's where Peter's at. Everything's gone wrong. Everything's blown up in his face. He thought when he signed up for following Jesus that he was going to see the kingdom come with glory, and now he's in a pit of despair betraying his own king. Friends, the good news is the irony of the gospel. It's the darkness of this episode. It's it's the weight of this scene that causes the glory of God to shine the brightest. Let me walk with you through four ironies that have taken place. We're going to go through them quickly. The first one, While Jesus stands in front of the high priest, Peter stands in front of a servant. While Jesus confesses the truth at the worst moment when it would kill him, Peter hides the truth at the best moment so that he can save himself. In his pride, Peter wanted to stand out from the other 11 disciples. And in this passage, he got his wish. Because no other disciple, not even Judas, denied Jesus like this. But in the greatest irony, friends, Peter's lies reveal the truth. Mark 2, 17. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, you want the good news? This episode where Peter is on trial is not what disqualifies him from following Jesus. This denial is what actually qualifies him to be a recipient of God's grace. It's his sin that it puts him as a qualified person for the salvation of Christ. As as Peter weeps over the horror of his sin, he's not starting this new life without Jesus. His tears are watering the seeds of the opportunity he will have to follow Jesus for real. Romans 5 verse 20, Paul tells us where sin increased, and it did with Peter, grace abounded all the more. Do you want to know the irony of the gospel? And can I just take all of this right now and just give it to you and say this is where the word applies to your life for you right now? Just like with Peter, friend, listen, your worst day doesn't have to define you. Your worst moment doesn't have to be the thing that marks your entire life. And it doesn't have to be the thing that God remembers first about you. But how can that be? 
The only way to know that is to look at this trial again and to see the person. But to be clear, I'm not talking about Peter. I'm talking about the one that Peter denies and potentially the one that Peter curses. Jesus knew this was going to happen. Look at in verse 30. Jesus tells Mark, or Peter in Mark 14, verse 30. Truly I tell you, truly, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew this when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ in Mark 8. Jesus knew this when he called Peter to be his disciple in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1 verse 17, when Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, Jesus knew what he was signing up for. Friends, the reality and the good news for Peter is that Jesus wasn't done making him. He was still making Peter who he was going to be. Friends, Jesus knew this before Peter was ever born. You know who knew that? Peter. Because Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 20 that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now Jesus knowing that this was going to happen and prophesying that this was going to happen doesn't take away from Peter's guilt. But I want you to know that God is still in control. He's still sovereign, even over Peter's life, even over Peter's sin. And you see God's control of the situation in Peter's life by all the ways that three shows up in Peter's life. Three times Jesus asked Peter to pray in the garden, and three times Peter falls asleep. Three times people ask Peter if he knows Jesus, and he denies Christ. But you skip ahead, go to the book of John, after Jesus dies for Peter, and Jesus rises from the grave for Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. And Peter three times says, you know that I do. And Jesus three times says, Peter, you, sir, who betrayed me at your worst moment, feed my sheep. You, who cursed me the night before I died, feed my people the word. Tell them about me then. How could Jesus say that to Peter? After what happens in the courtyard, how can Jesus call Peter to be a pastor to preach the good news. He wouldn't even preach the good news to a servant. It's because Jesus is the one who can turn your worst day into your salvation. Jesus is the one who can take the worst episode of your life, the worst words that ever come out of your mouth, and turn them into the reason for praise to God. First Peter 
3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Friend, there is good news. You don't have to come to church and, and make yourself worthy enough. Put on a show for people. Become holy enough that God would accept you. Jesus stood on trial so that Peter and you and me could stand before God as holy and clean. Not because of how we have put on ourselves, but what Jesus did for us. Jesus became the curse for our sin. Jesus became the curse even for the people who would curse him. So that, brothers and sisters, when you stand on trial before God and God asks the Son, Jesus, why they should, why you and me should enter into heaven, Jesus can say, they belong to me. They're one of my people. Friend, before God, will Jesus say that about you? Are you depending on that promise from Christ? There's only two, way, two things that, that need to happen for Jesus to say that about you, friend. And you have to have, that, have them both in your life. Friends, you have to come to a point where you let Jesus and his word pay for your sin. Friends, you have to let Jesus' worst day count for you. You give him your worst day your worst moment, your worst deeds, your worst words, and you let Jesus take them from you. He dies on the cross for your sin, pays the penalty, and rose again from the grave to show you that he had victory over that, that your worst day could be erased from his record. But friends, there's another thing that has to happen. It can't just happen on the inside. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It has to become a public proclamation of what God has done on the inside. And I'm not just making that up. Romans chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So friend, maybe God's done that work in your life, but have you, have you let that profession come out of your mouth? Have you let that go on public? Jesus has no private followers. Jesus has no hidden Christians. Friends, this is what baptism represents. Baptism is our formal public declaration of what God has done for us. So friend, if God has saved you and done that work in your life, and you've not been baptized, Jesus would tell you, come out with it. Be baptized and let the world know who you are and what God has done in your life. Friend, that's what belonging to a church signals to the world. When you choose to put your name with a church family, a local Christian family, and do life with them, you are answering the question of the servant girl. Are you one of them? Friend, you can't not answer that question. 
If you are to follow Christ, it must be a public following. It must be one where you declare to the world who you are. So friend, if if the Lord is showing you that you need to make your discipleship, your following of Christ public, do that. Take the steps that he has laid out before you to declare to the world that you belong to the king. And church, just let me use this message, this opportunity to ask you, to remind you, you and I will stand on trial. Not for our salvation, but we will be held accountable for everything that we do for our king. Are you ready? When Mark wrote this passage, he wrote in a time where Christians were having to answer these questions to the point of death, where the the Roman Empire was arresting believers in Mark's day and putting them at gunpoint, basically, and asking, do you follow the Christ like Peter? And the only way that they would live is to deny Jesus like Peter. And they had to stand. Now, your trial may not come to that, but you know what? It may. Are you ready to stand for Jesus? This is what Jesus says, Matthew 10, verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These are sober words from our king, who is a king of grace. Friends, grace will save us from sin, but grace will keep the true believer from denying Christ like that at that moment. Friends, by his grace, may we be ready for those trials. Let me just ask you, when people find out you're a Christian, what kind of thoughts go on in your head? Oh, man. Wasn't ready for that to come out. You go to church where? Friends, even in our informal conversations at work, we can't be like Peter. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God has saved us from our worst day already. He's taken nothing and given us everything. Friends, in that moment, we got to remember the grace of what Jesus Christ has done and stand up on trial, and share the hope that we have. This is where Peter eventually got, by the grace of God. I just want to encourage you with Peter's words. We've seen his worst day. Listen to him now. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, the Peter who made it, the Peter who met Jesus after the resurrection and was given grace and an opportunity has called us to do the same. Suffering may come, rejection may come, but we can entrust a God who is in control. Trust his goodness to us and stand for Christ. Your Savior stood on trial for you so that you could stand for him. Jesus will claim you as his child. Claim him as your king. Let's pray.